Hello, fantasy and romance fans, and welcome to episode two of Elizabeth Chatsworth's The Brass Queen. I'm Jess, and this is Cam Cat Unwrapped. Previously on The Brass Queen. In an alternate version of Victorian England, Miss Constance Haltwhistle is the last in a line of blue-blooded rogue inventors. She runs her ancestral estate alone since her gentleman scientist father absconded to a parallel dimension using an alien artifact. Papa will be declared legally deceased in three days' time, and as a single woman can't inherit property, Constance must marry. To secure a proposal from a suitably noble beau, the arms dealer presents herself as a traditional prim and proper baron's daughter at her coming out ball. But when kidnappers snatch a group of scientists with her family's serum, Constance and U.S. spy J.F. Truesdale join forces to find them. Truesdale has persuaded Constance to give him a ride to his hotel, but the price he will pay for this carriage ride is telling Constance everything he knows about the invisibility serum. How will he do that without giving himself away? Chapter 5, Mermaid Ahoy Standing as a testament to the triumph of science over nature, the hourglass-shaped tower of the Pyro Club loomed 200 feet above the treetops of Eclisol Woods. Rain slid over the curves of the figure-eight edifice, slick against the black granite lower half, glistening over the transparent top. Inside the tower's bulbous head, flashes of purple lightning crackled against the tempered glass. Outside, a violet vortex of unnatural storm clouds raged around the scientific enclave. Electrical energy tinged the forest air with the metallic taste of ozone. So sharp, Truesdale figured it could almost cut his tongue. The lavender light show transformed the ancient woods into a lurid, alien landscape. For the first time in years, he felt homesick for the prairies of his native state. Folks could say what they liked about Kansas, but at least it wasn't a glowing purple nightmare. The club's gravel driveway wound in a lazy spiral around the hourglass tower. The weather seemed to be worsening the further they got from the city center, Silver sheets of rain blustered between the twisted trees. Truesdale was starting to appreciate the comfort of traveling in a warm, dry carriage. Even if his companion was herself as odd as a seven-dollar bill, Miss Haltwhistle's seat was by far the plushest he'd ever sat upon. Heedless of the storm, the baron's daughter was trying to pull down the carriage window to get a better view of the tower. Swollen tight from the rain, the wooden frame wouldn't budge. Aha! Here was his chance to curry favor with the woman who could send him back to jail. Truesdale stood and pushed on the top of the frame with one hand, dropping the window instantly with a tinkle of broken glass. Most helpful, thank you. Her tone was colder than a brass toilet seat in the Yukon. He sank back onto the velvet bench. I can pay 
Not at all. Do excuse me. She stood and leaned out of the window into the tempest. The wind whipped her waist-length hair into a frenzy around her tiny hat. There was something about her copper hair that reminded him of his first true love, Millie. They'd spent every hour they could together, strolling through the meadows, tracking deer through the woods, sharing a bite by a roaring fire as snow drifted over the plains. His dear, sweet Millie, the queen of Irish setters. Constance's auburn tresses darkened to a tawny red in the rain. When she got a clear view of the giant hourglass between the trees, she clapped her hands in delight. He smiled, fascinated by the wild dance of her luscious locks. She'd have made a terrific mermaid. For all he knew, she could have been one. Who knew what she hid beneath that lace-covered bustle? Constance murmured, From the sky it must look like a lighthouse for the gods. Time to show off a little. As part of his cover, he'd memorized several science-related speeches. His brother had loved to explain complex power systems to all within earshot, whether they desired to learn or not. He cleared his throat. The purple lightning you see at the top half of the tower is the output of a high-frequency air core transformer. It creates a powerful electrical field which burns at an extremely high voltage. The lightning arcs from the Tesla coil run to 100 million volts or more. That energy provides wireless lighting and the raw power to drive the hundred bright inventions currently being developed within the club's state-of-the-art facilities. You seem rather well-informed. Did you read the brochure? She pulled back into the carriage. Seemingly unconcerned about her rain-soaked lace dress, she drew her two stiletto hairpins from beneath her scarlet hat. She deftly whirled her wet hair into a tight bun and pinned it with precision above the nape of her neck. She used both hands to smooth stray strands into straight-laced submission, the woman had transformed from potential mermaid into stern librarian in one swift move. A vague sense of disappointment came over him. She continued, As you are clearly an expert, perhaps you can answer this question. Does it come in any other colors? He frowned. What, the Tesla coil? The lightning. It would be fabulous in green. He couldn't read a single nuance from her expression. Is this an example of dry British humor? It's so hard to tell. Time to name drop. I'll ask Nicola for you when I get home. Her eyes widened. You know Nicola Tesla? J.F. sure did. I sure do. When I was a student at West Point, he came to give a series of lectures. He asked me to serve as his assistant while he was there. The work was fascinating, to say the least. Really? Gosh... Tesla and West Point. What an interesting combination. Did Mr. Tesla demonstrate electrical weaponry? I've heard rumors that... He held up his hand. I'm sorry, but I'm not at liberty to discuss the contents of his lectures with non-military personnel. State secrets, you know. She sighed. Just when you were starting to get interesting. In what year did you graduate? 1888. He frowned. No. That was his own graduation date. When did J.F. pass out of the academy? Uh, I mean, 1885. Her lips narrowed. I see. She sat back and folded her arms. 
Had she noticed his slip-up? Her face was unreadable. She said, Moving on, once you have changed into more suitable attire at the Pyro Club, we shall progress to the steamworks to investigate Maya's laboratory. Perhaps we'll find a clue the Redcoats missed as to why she and the others were kidnapped. Other than being a weaponry genius, such knowledge makes her valuable to the right parties. Constance's brow furrowed. True. I'd never really thought of it that way. I, that is, she should have been more careful. I'll bet Maya's thinking the same thing. Listen, about trotting over to the steamworks and asking to poke around her laboratory. Yes. I doubt my temporary consultant credentials will gain me access without Maya there to oversee me, especially now that somebody has threatened the security of the place. You won't be able to get in at all. The Crown doesn't allow any Tom, Dick, or Halt whistle to just wander in and snoop around, you know. Oh, how tedious. Nevertheless, we shall try. I'm telling you that part of the plan isn't going to work. I'd recommend... Not with that attitude, it won't. Your utter lack of usefulness to getting us into the steamworks aside, you have yet to share your knowledge of the invisible men who carried out this dreadful attack. He glanced again out the window to reassure himself that the club wasn't too far a walk. He'd been holding back his invisible man story on the impression that Miss Haltwhistle was the type of lady who might well throw a gentleman out of her carriage if she had no further use for him, and this was not an easy tale to swallow. He'd have to watch his words around her. She was sharper than a bowie knife. I must warn you, Miss Haltwhistle, you may find this tale hard to believe. Oh, I love a good story well told. Do continue. This is the true account of a man who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Was it you? Yes, a younger, dumber version. No, not me. It was a man with a close-cut black beard. Don't ask me his name, as they didn't mention it in the newspaper article that stirred my interest in this case. About two years back, a macabre series of murders occurred right here in England. The perpetrator was killed by an angry mob in a village called... Well, that's not important. What is important is an incident that took place right before the villain met his grisly fate. She leaned forward in the seat, her green eyes alight. Go on. Our hero was an American tourist just minding his own business, downing a few pints with the locals in a pub called the Jolly Cricketers. She groaned. I should have known any tale about invisible men was going to involve alcohol. Just how plastered was this tourist? He scowled. He barely had a drop. Two pints, maybe three, of Burton Ale. Anyway, as he shared tales of adventure with his newfound friends, someone burst into the pub screaming like a madman. She gasped. The killer. No, I'm getting to him. The fellow who ran into the pub was frantic with fear. He said that an invisible man was trying to murder him. To humor him, we, that is, the locals, locked the doors tight. You can imagine the shock on every man's face as bricks came crashing through the windows thrown by an unseen hand. Was it dark out? That's not the point. The assailant was bent on killing us all if he got the chance. 
It seems he'd been a man of science who'd stumbled upon the secret to invisibility through a series of mad experiments. He used himself as a test subject, which rarely ends well. His newly discovered serum drove him into a ghostly world of madness and depravity. The things a man can do when he no longer has to look himself in the eye. But I digress. It was up to our American hero to save the day. He drew out his trusty service revolver. So he was a military man? Once upon a time, I guess. Anyway, he pointed his gun out through the window at the transparent fiend. A policeman in the bar said, That won't do. That's murder. Our hero replied, I know what country I'm in. I'm going to let off at his legs. He fanned his shots, firing five rounds at knee height toward the invisible foe. One bullet hit, driving the madman away with a trail of blood seeping from his wound. The wet trail allowed others to track the enemy to his ultimate demise. The monster's murder spree ended that very night at the hands of the villagers he'd terrorized. Gosh, and what became of the invisibility serum? He shrugged. That's what everyone wanted to know. There were rumors of a journal that contained the formula. Some say a local landowner got his hands on it, a certain Lord Burdock. She blinked. Are you sure? That name seems awfully familiar. I believe I may have invited a Lord Burdock to attend my coming out ball. Well, isn't that a coincidence? Raised voices floated in through the broken window. Constance stared into the rain. Speaking of angry mobs, we appear to have run into one ourselves. She pointed to the entrance of the Pyro Club, under siege by twenty or so men and women clad in steamworks uniforms. The throng shouted insults at a couple of policemen guarding the club's black doors. The carriage rumbled to a halt behind the proletarian protest. As mobs go, they were quite smartly dressed. Chestnut brown vests, bowler hats, white shirts, and suspenders were de rigueur. The ladies had put aside long skirts in favor of factory-friendly bloomers and high-laced boots. The men had tucked their moleskin pants into wool socks above hobnailed work clogs. Both sexes wore tool belts stuffed with the wrenches, spanners, and calipers required for successful tinkering and stood in the deluge without coats or umbrellas. It seemed they had left the floor of the armaments factory in a hurry. Two policemen clad in blue stood in the shelter of the arched doorway. Both had their arms folded. In England, two constables with folded arms were more than enough to keep a mob of twenty at bay. The officers glared at the carriage, clearly expecting more problems to emerge from its elegant frame. Truesdale grimaced. You'd better stay in here. He reached for the door handle. Constance leaned forward and whispered, Please don't. He stopped. She held up one finger and waited. Her elderly servant appeared by the door. With a flourish, the footman opened a large black umbrella and shielded the carriage steps as his own coat darkened from the rain. Would you mind awfully letting Collie open the door? She nodded toward the beak-nosed servant. He gets quite miffed if you do it yourself. I can manage. I'm sure you can, but he'll sulk for days if you do. It's best to let him do things the way he thinks they should be done. He has a set procedure for almost everything. I suppose so. 
the Baron's daughter appeared relieved. He'll wait fifteen seconds to give us time to gather our belongings. She turned to press a brass button on the wood paneling behind her head. A panel slid open to reveal a rack of ten umbrellas and parasols in a rainbow of colors. She selected a scarlet umbrella with a handle whimsically styled as a fox. Would you care for an umbrella? No, thanks. We're pretty close to the entrance. It's not for the rain. She nodded toward the steam workers. It's in case we need to defend ourselves. They might be anarchists. Anarchists don't tend to wear uniforms. They could be part-time anarchists, stirring up trouble on their tea breaks, brawly or no. No thanks, and I think you should stay inside the... She was already halfway out of the carriage, holding the gloved hand of the servant for steadiness as she stepped down. She kept the umbrella furled and advanced on the group, ready for trouble. He did so love a woman of action. Truesdale suppressed a grin and followed. Collie held his umbrella over his mistress, stalking behind her on impossibly skinny legs. The crowd parted before the woman's diminutive frame, her authority to interfere apparently confirmed by her upright bearing and confident stride. She marched up to the policemen. They unfolded their arms and stood up straight. Right, she said. What's going on here, then? The two constables exchanged worried glances. They won't let us in, shouted one of the steam workers. Yes, thank you, I can see that, called Constance over her shoulder. The senior officer, a hatchet-faced giant with unruly sideburns, growled, The club is full. They can't stay here. There's no room. His colleague, who was young and slender with a trainee mustache, said, they're here because of the evacuation, miss. The whole steamworks has gone on lockdown for the next few days. There was a major security breach last night. The word is that three top scientists were kidnapped by an airship at a fancy party. Some debutante turned down the offer of redcoat guards in favour of her own servants, if you can believe that. Can you imagine the audacity? Let me stop you right there, said Constance. The policeman studied her expectantly. Constance raised her eyebrows. Yes? The officers exchanged glances. Aren't you going to sigh something? Such as? The constables gaped at Constance while Truesdale smothered a smirk. <clears throat> officers, am I to understand that the steamworks is completely closed? Constable Hatchetface said, Not just closed, sir. Locked down. No one is going in or out. National security and all that. The junior policeman added, And the no one going in and out includes this lot. He waved an arm at the steam workers. Most of them live in the works dormitories. Now they've got nowhere to stay, and every hotel in town is sold out cause of the Queen's visit, so they're stuck out in the cold with no roof over their head. And they can't stay here, said Constable Hatchetface firmly. Can't have the hoi polloi staying with the muckety-mucks now, can we? This stirred angry muttering from the crowd. Constance blew out her breath. So they're definitely not anarchists, then? The junior policeman's expression softened. No, they're just wet sods looking for a dry bed, miss. Halt whistle, she said, wincing. This revelation drew a, well, I never... 
several oohs and a shocked get away, will ya? From the crowd, Constance turned to face the steam workers with the air of a captain going down with her airship. Yes, all right, it was my coming out ball. I'm sorry that you have all been inconvenienced by the nefarious villains that perpetrated this kidnapping. Nevertheless, I shall set things as right as I can. To the policeman, she said, Is there a telegraph desk in the club? Indeed there is, miss, said the senior officer. In fact, he raised his voice so the crowd could hear, We've just used it to call for backup. This raised a fresh grumble from the damp throng. Corley, said Constance, do we still have all those camp cots available, the ones we used for the wounded soldiers last year? Yes, miss, said the servant, in a voice reminiscent of dried leaves crunching underfoot. Excellent. We'll telegraph Whirlow Junction Rail Station to ask them to run a message up to the hall. The staff can set up the cots to accommodate our overnight guests. Constance spun back to the waiting crowd and threw her arms wide. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm delighted to invite you all to stay at Halt Whistle Hall. We have hot food, warm beds, and plenty of ale. Please discreetly spread the word to your colleagues, should they require lodging. The steamworkers seemed torn between gratitude and gripes at the aristocrat who was both the cause of and solution to their current misery. One stately woman with a supervisor's medal pinned upon her blouse looked around the mixed feelings and took it upon herself to step forward. Bless your art, miss. We're most thankful for your kindness. Strawberries of color lit up Constance's cheeks. Yes, well, don't mention it. I do hope none of you catch pneumonia from this dreadful downpour. She turned her attention back to the senior policeman. I assume you have no qualms about these, my new friends, waiting inside until I send for my carriages to pick them up. The unholy union of Miss Muckety-Muck with the Hoy Polloi was clearly above Constable Hatchetface's pay grade. I suppose that's all right, miss, as long as they stand right inside the doors and don't touch anything. Splendid, beamed Constance. She nodded at Collie. The aged retainer stepped between the policemen and grasped the hourglass-shaped handles on the two great doors. With a firm shove, he pushed the doors open to reveal a black marble foyer lit by glowing filament bulbs. The foyer was empty save for a coat-check counter and a tuxedoed, slick-haired club manager with a pencil mustache and the air of a major d. Two steel and brass doors strong enough to guard the royal mint stood closed at the rear of the foyer. The manager stared aghast as the steamworkers stomped into his domain. He couldn't have looked more shocked had Attila the Hun and his rampaging hordes burst into the foyer demanding lemonade. He lit upon a known face. Ah, Mr. Truesdale, you've returned. How was your first evening in the city? Absolute hell, thanks for asking. Truly unforgettable. I think Miss Haltwhistle here, he gestured toward Constance, would like to send a telegram if you don't mind. Constance appeared faintly bemused at this introduction. Truesdale added, You can put it on my tab. 
as the steamworks were paying for his stay, he could afford to be generous. Absolutely, sir. The transmitter is in my office, and your other associates? The manager cast a disdainful eye on the disheveled steamworkers, who were dripping all over the pristine marble floor. Constance said, They will wait here for transport to my home, which is less than half an hour's drive. They will not be an inconvenience, I assure you. The manager wisely chose not to argue with her. The steamworkers sat on the floor, a brown and white puddle of humanity brought low by fate and circumstance. Truesdale leaned close to Constance and murmured, that was mighty neighborly of you, offering shelter to the huddled masses and all. She smoothed back her hair. I just thought they looked untidy out there. If you say so. Well, I'm going to head to my room for a half hour or so to clean myself up. It'll be good to get out of these damp clothes. She stared at his shirt as if she'd never seen it before, and her cheeks tinged pink. Damn, had he been indecorous? He cleared his throat. I mean, I'm going to strip off and scrub myself. I, you know what? Never mind. While I'm gone, stay alert. Constance cocked her head, one eyebrow raised. Why do you say that? I just have a feeling. That he was being watched? Given that the entire Steamworks crew openly gawked at his appearance with expressions ranging from amusement to mild alarm... It seemed like a foolish thing to say. Back home, his boots, tooled with shooting stars, wouldn't have drawn a second glance. To these folks, he was clearly something of an oddity. Yes, he was definitely being watched. He shrugged. I don't know. Just send your telegram and keep your guard up. That's all. Constance rolled her eyes and sashayed after the manager through the vault-like doors. Collie trotted after her like a lapdog. Truesdale took a final glance around the lobby. With a tip of his hat to the steamworkers, he strode into the heart of the Piro Club. Chapter 6 Drunk Science Constance had never visited the Piro Club, despite the fact her papa was an honorary member. The Baron's groundbreaking thesis on the perceived sentience of certain archaeological relics had caused a sensation in the late 1880s. He'd head out to the club every Tuesday afternoon, returning hours later, blind drunk and bursting to share news of the latest scientific advancements. His tipsy state had been a vital part of the research process. The Pyrrho Club had been founded on the principle that exponential growth in human knowledge could be achieved through the liberal consumption of alcohol. Cocktail napkins around the world bore written testimony of the brilliant ideas that flowed through inebriated minds. Unleashing that creativity was the primary goal of the club's specially trained waitstaff. The correct application of an absinthe cocktail here or a brandy there, might inspire the creation of a world-changing discovery. It was ten o'clock in the morning, and the science was in full swing. A-list scientists from the Empire and beyond toasted their colleagues across tables piled high with research notes. Shoulder-buttoned lab coats adorned men and women of every creed and color. 
Tuxedoed waiters swung between the crowded tables carrying glasses of inspiration on silver trays. They padded silently across the black marble floor beneath the frosted glass ceiling. Beyond the glass, the purple lighting of the Tesla coil snarled and writhed like a hellish sea beast. Sedate, by comparison, yellow filament lights glowed softly from the dark walls surrounding the circular room. Constance turned to Collie, who seemed to have walked three steps behind her since the day her one-year-old self first tottered out of the nursery in search of a snack. Look, Collie, electrical lights. Maybe we should install a few at home? The old man pulled a face that could have soured milk at ten paces. She grinned. Collie viewed anything more technologically advanced than a candle as bad news. In fact, he probably thought candles were a little on the flash side. Not that he'd ever openly proclaimed his disdain for technological progress. Like children, servants were expected to be seen and not heard. As such, their inner thoughts remained a mystery that revealed itself only through facial tics. This chasm between classes held benefits for both sides. As a benevolent dictator... She could assume her orders would be followed to the best of her servants' abilities. In return, they could bring to fruition her wilder ideas, safe in the knowledge that the results were clearly not their fault. What would the servants do if she failed to marry, and Uncle Bertie seized the estate? He'd never forgiven Papa for eloping with his only sister, but since Mama's death, his hatred of Papa bordered on insanity— Rumors flew that once Bertie gained legal possession, he intended to raise the estate, willfully destroying the livelihood of all who worked there. Constance studied her retainer's crumpled paper face. Not on her watch. The brass queen protected her own. She'd raise hell and bring down heaven before she let Bertie so much as throw a dark glance toward Collie's silver-haired pate. The object of her protection glowered at a Belgian scientist performing hiccup-laced equations for his cheering colleagues. Constance sighed. If only the scientist's great minds could discover her a noble husband in double-quick time, she would have paid a king's ransom for the device, serum, or lens that could reveal such a man— but the geniuses were focused on lesser mysteries of the universe than her love life, or lack thereof. Perhaps, in another dimension, an alternate version of her could stand on a table and speak with such passion about the impending loss of the estate that they would flock to help her. Alas, she could not be so bold in this one. Inquiries into Papa's current location could potentially be linked by the brilliant minds present to his obsession with arcane artifacts and his theories concerning parallel worlds. The thought of scientists learning Papa's secrets made her shudder. Scientists were the last people on Earth she'd want to know of his experiments, not that they themselves were evil, but it seemed inevitable that at some juncture their good work would be turned by others to nefarious ends. Curiosity had wiped out many a world in the multiverse. Split this, shoot that. It was a slippery slope.
from the amusing images of the camera obscura to charred cities and ruined lives. This was why Papa had never let her travel to other worlds. Apart from the inherent physical danger of a portal transfer, he'd assured her that the sights she might see could ruin her outlook on humanity for good. But shouldn't that be her choice to make? Or did Papa truly know best? And if ignorance was bliss, shouldn't she be much happier than she currently was? She shook her head. She must stay focused. As both Miss Haltwhistle and the Brass Queen, saving the estate was job one. But perhaps it wouldn't hurt to learn a few new scientific secrets whilst she was here. Not full-blown curiosity, of course, but maybe just a smidge of natural inquisitiveness. Constance followed the club manager on a weaving path between the crowded tables. At every opportunity, she peered over shoulders at complicated formulas written on napkins, tablecloths, and lab coat sleeves. The room hummed with conversation in a host of exotic languages. She cursed her lack of fluency. She was only proficient in 19 languages, including French, Latin, Russian, Welsh, Portuguese, and nine dialects of ancient Sumerian. Papa had always insisted that the key to understanding other cultures was to learn their language, a population with 32 words for love and only one for war, experienced a kinder world than linguistically combative neighbors. She strolled by the scientists, leaning in to catch snippets of their conversation. An experiment to galvanize corpses was a popular topic. This was matched only by the unearthing of bones from the giant lizard Eotyrinus. Inevitably, work was now underway to create a vast, undead army of dinosaurs— that could only end well. She paused by a table of particularly inebriated geniuses. A petite Australian woman hiccuped. Ether is the answer to all our energy problems. You mark my words. Her Prussian companion nodded, downing a mug of hard cider in one long gulp. Arthur mocked Moglick. Scientific discourse in action. Truesdale was so lucky to get to stay here and experience the intellectual milieu. She glanced back. The American trailed slowly behind her, his blue eyes scanning the room. Stubble shadowed his square jaw, and his neckerchief was in a disheveled knot above his unbuttoned waistcoat. Apparently, he was still unaware that his hat should be in his hand not on his head. He noticed her stare and flushed beneath his tan. Hmm, is that his guilty conscience showing? Perhaps he's realized that his hat is an affront to civilized society? Or is he hiding a sinister secret? In the carriage, he'd stumbled on his graduation date from West Point, and his story about the invisible man contained details he could never have gained from a newspaper article. Truesdale glanced down at his waistcoat and fumbled to button it as he walked. Of all the men in the room, it was Truesdale who seemed least likely to have assisted Nikola Tesla. In fact, he seemed to be exactly the sort of man who might spend his evenings drinking in a pub before shooting a man in the knee. 
The invisibility serum may be real, but Truesdale's story rang hollow. Was it possible that he had been the gun-toting American tourist? And if he was, why lie? The club manager stopped at a waist-height gate set into a brass railing that protected a twenty-foot-wide circular teak platform. Two overstuffed Chesterfield sofas faced each other in the center of the platform. A tasseled lamp illuminated a library table stacked with newspapers in a multitude of languages. A freckle-faced youth in an exuberantly gold-braided uniform stood beside a polished brass console with forty numbered buttons. At home, a press of a button usually led to the appearance of beverages, scones, books, or more logs for the fire. What wonders might this gleaming console produce? The manager opened the gate and indicated that she should sit. The leather sofa creaked as she settled her bustle into place. Cawley sat beside her, his bones creaking far more loudly than the cushions ever could. The manager sat opposite, fiddling with his bow tie and brushing his lapels beneath her gaze. Truesdale strode over to the library table, grabbed a handful of newspapers, and collapsed heavily on the sofa next to the manager. He stretched out his long legs, narrowly missing Collie's shins with his enormous boots. The cowboy shook open the broadsheet newspaper with a loud rustle and began to read, flicking through the pages with what she deemed to be unnecessary enthusiasm. She mentally added public reading to her list of things about Truesdale that irritated her. Perhaps she should start writing these down. Papa always kept a list of his friends and enemies' strengths and flaws, to be used as ammunition in case of an all-out war. Truesdale wasn't exactly a friend or an enemy, yet she'd have to create a column for potential asset and or annoyance. The manager said to the freckled boy, Floors one and four. Yes, sir, said the boy. He pushed several buttons and waited. Nothing resembling tea, scones, or any other delights appeared. She folded her hands neatly in her lap and tried not to fidget. The English were known for their ability to wait, and she certainly wasn't going to let down her countrymen by making a fuss in front of Truesdale. Two minutes later, the seat beneath her bustle vibrated. Almost imperceptibly, the teak platform began to sink, she gasped and grabbed the cushions for support. Don't worry, miss, said the manager. It's designed to do that. You are riding upon a levitating reading room. They're all the rage in America. Are they indeed? She glared at Truesdale behind his newspaper, but he failed to apologize for his country's lack of taste. It's fairly safe, Miss Holtwistle, said the manager. There's very little chance of asphyxiation. We take things slowly, as a precaution. I see. She sat for a while, watching the walls inch by. And how long will this journey take? Fourth floor, about twenty minutes. Right. She rubbed her temples. So would stairs be an option for this trip? 
Stairs are considered to be old technology. This building is an avant-garde design at the very forefront of innovation. Plus, muttered Truesdale from behind his paper, stairs and drunks, not a good combination. The manager gaped at him, apparently stunned by the American's lack of understanding regarding the intricacies of modern science. Constance wouldn't make the same mistake. I see, most ingenious. And who designed this masterpiece of engineering? The manager puffed out his chest. None other than Professor Pabody. He also designed the Steamworks Exhibition Dome. Are you familiar with it? Indeed I am. It is stunning. Although, I do have to say I found some of the features over there a bit odd. Truesdale dropped down one corner of his newspaper with a snap. Odd how? Well, for a start, the gift shop relocates itself every night. Truesdale groaned. Miskatonic architecture. Great. Just great. That's all we need. Rooms that move, floors that vanish, creatures from beyond in the gents. He flicked up his newspaper with a particularly aggressive rustle and continued to read. The manager looked as if he might well faint at such rampant philistinism. Constance studied the wall with new interest. From behind the newspaper, the American said, Do you happen to have handy the guest list for your shindig last night? Shindig? She considered whether it was worth the effort to ask Truesdale to make a formal request using the proper vocabulary. But if she started down that conversational road now, the entire day could disappear into a tautological nightmare of explaining what words he could officially use according to Babette's definition of decorum. Even the very thought of trying to educate him to all the nuances of the English language tired her. Perhaps in this particular circumstance, a simple response was best. I do, indeed. She stood and reached backward into the hidden bag she had sewn into her bustle. Truesdale dropped the newspaper and stared at her. She rummaged around and pulled out a rolled parchment. She held it out to him. He took it uncertainly. Did you just pull this out of your... Bustle, yes. I do so hate to carry a reticule. He lifted one unruly eyebrow at her. A reticule is a drawstring bag. I seem to lose them all the time, so instead I have one sewn directly into my... Bustle, right. He burst out laughing. She flushed, sat, and folded her arms. The nerve of him, after she'd had the uncommon decency to refrain from mocking his horrendous hat. If I wasn't such a lady, I'd kick him right in the... The teak platform shuddered to a halt. Here's your floor, sir, said the manager to Truesdale. Eight black corridors led off from the platform shaft. Glowing filament lights ran the length of each corridor, casting shadows into dark doorways. A handful of guests walked the corridors, pausing here and there for clandestine chats with their colleagues. The bellboy opened the gate for Truesdale. The cowboy strode down one of the corridors, drawing curious glances from the other residents. Next stop, fourth floor. She might well die of old age before she got there. She tapped her boot on the platform. 
amusing herself by spelling out the word bored in Morse code. After tapping her way through two Wordsworth sonnets, she reached into her bustle bag and pulled out her travel edition of Babette's Modern Manners. The bookplate declared in florid script that this edition belonged to Lady Annabella Pendleroy. She traced Mama's maiden name, the ink rendered almost invisible by her fingertips through the years. Mama would have been proud. She was trying to follow the rules. Papa couldn't give two hoots for etiquette, but Mama. Heavens, what would Mama have thought of Truesdale? Constance flicked through the book turning down page corners for those manners of which the American was devoid. It was so odd he didn't carry any identification in his wallet, not even a calling card, uninvited party guest, cat burglar, liar. How could she find out who he really was? He'd mentioned both West Point and Nikola Tesla. That was a starting point, now, which of her American arms customers would be morally flexible enough to forge the paperwork to run a background check on Truesdale? She slapped her thigh and grinned, raising the eyebrows of both Collie and the manager. Of course, Mr. Bobby Two-Fists Malone of Chicago. He seems like a fellow unencumbered by rules and regulations delighted to have formulated a new aspect of the plan with a capital P. She sprang out of her seat as the levitating reading room approached her floor. The manager only just managed to open the brass safety gate before Constance strode through it down the steel corridor, a woman on a mission. She barely glanced into the windowed laboratories lining the corridor. Four gorillas sat at a table playing whist, as a white-coated scientist wrote notes on a clipboard. In the next lab, a white-coated gorilla with a clipboard wrote notes on four human scientists playing poker. Fascinating, but not enough to slow her progress. A chill seized her as heavy snow fell unexpectedly from the ceiling. She blinked up at an oily green haze drifting below the steel plates. Malfunctioning weather machine said the manager, hurrying to keep pace with her. It has a tendency to puff out the odd microstorm. That's probably yesterday's blizzard, and nothing to worry about. She marched on. The manager's office was notable for a fifteen-foot-wide hole in the floor that plunged through four layers of lower laboratories to a granite bedrock. A small mishap in one of the labs, said the manager, switching on the telegraph transmitter on a battered mahogany desk. Raw ether? she asked. His eyes widened. Why, yes, I believe so. Are you of a scientific bent, Miss Holtwhistle? I am indeed. I'd love to chat all day about the do's and don'ts of safely utilizing ether without fracturing dimensional integrity, but time is of the essence. Are you ready to transmit? He nodded dumbly hand poised to tap out her message. Address this to Mr. Robert Malone, a resident of Oily Annie's Hostelry in Chicago, USA. Dear Bobby, I do hope my... What would be a good substitute for the word flamethrowers? She couldn't recall this week's code word for incendiary armaments. 
Was it something to do with flowers? Rose-scented candles generated the pyrotechnic excitement you desired atop the cake at your niece's birthday party stop. She ignored Collie's melodramatic sigh. He'd clearly missed his calling on the vaudeville stage. I have a small favor to ask, stop. I've met one of your countrymen, a most curious Kansas cowboy. Chapter 7 A Close Shave It took Truesdale ten minutes and a smattering of his more colorful language to wrench off his wet boots. Water had swollen up his woolen socks to the point where sock and boot had become one entity. He peeled off his shirt and dropped it beside the freestanding copper bathtub. A nest of pipes encircled the base of the tub and ran through holes cut into the black marble floor. The same dark stone covered the walls and ceiling, where tiny filament lights twinkled like stars on a desert night. The subterranean bathroom's air, pumped down from the forest surface by softly whirring fans, was thick with the scent of wet leaves and ozone. Three golden dolphin faucets arched over the side of the tub, surrounded by colored buttons. With no letters written on them, he chanced pressing the red, blue, and green buttons. The copper pipes rattled, and warm water, green foam, and a cedar-scented oil cascaded from the dolphins into the tub. He screwed up his nose at the perfumed decadence, He'd have preferred a cold dunk in a horse trough to this European self-indulgence, but when in Rome, he dragged off his damp pants and red woolen long johns. Stark naked, except for his Stetson, he strode over to a gilded standing mirror, around which flounced dolphins, seashells, and a winsome mermaid. Replace her golden hair with copper, and she could almost pass for an aquatic Miss Haltwhistle, not that he was thinking of her. Turning his back, he glanced at his reflection over his shoulder. Dried puncture wounds peppered his skin. Splinters from the oak stage had drilled through his coat when he pushed Constance to safety. It sure said something about her character that she didn't seem to know the words, "'Thank you for saving my life,' or even, I'm sorry I had you arrested. She probably thought he should be thanking her for not letting him swing. Who knew? Maybe he should be? A few hours in the company of Miss Haltwhistle, and the whole world felt topsy-turvy. He flipped off his Stetson, hung it on the top corner of the mirror, and headed back to the tub. A shaving shelf behind the dolphins held an extendable mirror, a straight razor, a mug, soap, a badger-haired brush, grooming scissors, and a tin of mustache wax. Everything the modern gent needed to look presentable to the fairer sex. He ran his hand over his chin. He could sand tables with this stubble. No wonder the baron's daughter kept looking at him like he'd just crawled out from under a rock. The names on her party invitation list were well above his usual social circle. Lord this, Lady that, Dr. Maya Chohan. 
Stay strong, Maya, if you're still breathing. The odds of rescuing the scientist from her captors were astronomical, but how could he share that with Constance? She clearly loved the Steamworks matriarch. Admittedly, the women made a peculiar pairing. One designed cutting-edge weapons, and the other was a pig farmer. Still, the thought of telling Constance that her friend was most likely, nope, I won't do that to her. It's always better to live in hope than despair. Besides, maybe his information about the original Invisible Man might tip fate's hand their way. On the party list, far below the names of Doctors McKinley and Wang, was the name Lord Peregrine Albertus Burdock. Constance appeared to have arranged the names not alphabetically, but by the order in which the attendee accepted her invitation. Was it significant that Burdock had accepted his invite after the scientists? He must have known they would be in attendance. Why would a man in possession of a working invisibility serum need a scientist? Or three? Beside Burdock's name, neat copperplate handwriting stated, Lord B. left the party just after the speeches, claimed to feel unwell. Miss Haltwhistle had clearly been making her own deductions from the list. He scratched his stubble. Why in heaven's name would Burdock steal the suits? If he already had the invisibility serum, he held more power at his command than most regents. Whether he used the invisibility serum for theft, murder, or mayhem, its very existence threatened the safety of all, no one on earth could escape the clutches of an invisible lunatic, not queen, pauper, nor pope. If word got out that invisible predators were stalking the shadows, would any soul ever sleep peacefully again? He sighed heavily. Sometimes he wished he knew less than he did. Ignorance was a luxury he hadn't enjoyed in quite a while. It would be nice to take some time off now and again from the worries of the world. The bath faucets clicked off automatically. No overflowing tubs here. He stepped in and sank into the cedar froth. Warmth enveloped his aching body. Maybe the Europeans are onto something with their fancy bubbles after all. Grasping the badger hair shaving brush in his hand, he tilted the mirror to see his red-rimmed eyes. He swirled soap and water in the mug, creating white lather to slather over his jaw. As the foam softened his bristles, he checked the straight razor's blade with his thumbnail. It rang as sharp as truth. Holding the smooth bone handle in his right hand, he shaved his cheeks, flicking stray lather into the bathtub as he went. He tilted his head back, exposing his throat. Running the blade down over his skin, he paused as the hair on the back of his neck prickled. The room was empty, with only the whirring fans for company. Always paranoid. Why can't I relax and enjoy the moment? He slowly ran the razor blade over his Adam's apple. He heard a slight intake of breath. He tensed as an unseen entity shoved his own razor blade hard into his flesh, 
stinging, biting, slicing. The iron tang of blood filled his nose. A warm gush of life slicked his throat, and panic churned his stomach. Push back, push back, push back. Against what? He thrust his forearm out, twisting the razor away from his jugular, grunting as the invisible assailant thudded onto his chest and slammed what felt like a bony knee into his throat. His skull cracked back into the copper tub as water filled his mouth, his nose, his ears, his eyes. Senses muffled, he blinked up through the water. Patches of green foam clung to parts of a body as naked as his own, but on top, pressing down, still trying to twist the razor from his hands even as he drowned. He convulsed, tried to buck off the creature, tried to twist and turn, tried to turn the razor to his advantage. The assailant rode him like a prize bull, keeping his face submerged one minute. Two. Lungs bursting, throat closing, sight dimming. He forced himself to relax. Crimson water cradled him to his grave. It was almost peaceful, letting go of the razor, surrendering. Impatient, the assailant chased the blade as it slipped from his limp fingers, a tilt of the creature's body weight, a slight lean to the left. Now, Truesdale punched out with his left fist, connecting with what he hoped was an invisible jaw. It wasn't a full-strength punch, but the creature's weight rocked back. Truesdale surfaced, gasping for air, eyes and lungs burning with his assailant still astride him. Something bony slammed into his right eye. He grabbed for a wrestling hold. His fingers lit on... a wrist? He tightened his grip and slid down into the foam, dragging his foe with him. He wrapped his arm around a surprisingly slender neck, keeping them both submerged. The attacker writhed, slick, and... wait, what? Either his enemy had unnaturally well-developed pectorals, or it was... A she. In his bath. This jarred his mind almost as much as the invisibility. Sensing his distraction, she dragged herself from his grip. They broke water together, gasping. The woman swore, Fantadig, as her elbows smashed into his nose, cracking it for the fifth time in his life. Swedish? She's a long way from home. Nose throbbing and eyes stinging, he shoved her out of the tub. She flopped onto the floor, winded. The green foam from the bathwater sketched the outlines of her curves in empty space. I've seen some macabre sights in my time, but this? His flesh crawled. She lunged toward his discarded clothes. Finding nothing of interest in his pants, she stood and reached for his hat hanging on the mirror. The artifact. No. He slopped out of the tub with the grace of a wet hound. His feet slid, and he fell back into the tub as the woman ran for the door with his hat. He lurched out of the bath again and shot after the invisible woman. His bare feet pounded on the marble floor as he chased the foamy female through the attached bedroom out into the hall. She raced down the stone corridor, dropping suds from her body, literally disappearing before his eyes. He bounded after her, eyes fixed on his floating hat. 
She sprinted for the levitating reading room, but the shaft stood empty, devoid of its teak platform. Huh, gotcha. She was trapped on his level with no stairs up or down. The Stetson levitated to hover about six feet above the railing. Had she put the hat on and climbed up onto the rail? Surely she wasn't going to jump. He slowed, spreading his hands wide to show he was unarmed. Ma'am, I swear I'm not going to hurt you. Just toss me the Stetson, and you can be on your way. A door to his left opened, and a woman screamed. He jumped as a female scientist thwacked him across his naked ribs with a furled umbrella. The hat bobbed along the railing and swayed on the far side of the shaft. The scientist's umbrella thwacked him again. He lurched toward the shaft. The hat leaped out into nothingness and dropped from his sight. Fixed on his prey, he hurtled the brass railing. Time slowed to the pace of molasses, falling like Lewis Carroll's Alice through the air. Nausea heaved up from his belly. What if she hadn't jumped? What if she'd merely tossed his hat into the shaft? He was falling to his death when he could have just waited for the Stetson to come up on the next platform rise. He was gonna die, looking like a damned fool, unless... The sound of a naked body slapping onto a leather sofa came from below. He slammed onto the opposite sofa. A thousand angry hornets stung his spine. Stars flashed before his eyes as air burst from his lungs. He groaned, his misery matched by a disembodied moan from the now foam-free woman on the opposite couch. The Stetson levitated off the sofa as she rose. He tried to sit, rolling like an ungainly foal on the leather cushions as his hat stumbled toward the gate. Its wearer flicked the latch open and trotted down the gray steel corridor leading from the platform. She was a professional, no doubt about it. He struggled up off the couch. The gaping, freckle-faced bellboy still stood by the library table. In his trembling hand, the boy held the broadsheet newspaper he'd been folding into a neat square. Read all about it. Foreign spies and assassins rain down in the heart of England. He grabbed the boy's newspaper, slapping the Yorkshire Herald over his family jewels. No need to scare the ladies. He sure didn't want to get hit by any more umbrellas. He followed his foe down the corridor. Blue bulbs lit up the steel walls every ten yards. He guessed they were on one of the laboratory floors. The temperature was even lower than on the lodging level, and the air held a metallic tang. Beneath his bare feet, the steel floor was hard and cold. From the sound of her footsteps, he guessed the invisible woman was at a full gallop and heading for the people at the far end of the hall. Truesdale groaned as he recognized the trio. Why did it have to be them? Stop that hat. Miss Haltwhistle spoke urgently to Collie and the tuxedoed club manager. She stepped out of the way of the bouncing Stetson. As the hat shot by her, Constance whipped out her umbrella's handle and hooked an invisible ankle. The hat shot toward the floor. A second swing of the red umbrella 
knocked the hat off an unseen head and propelled it toward the ceiling. Vodielveta, screamed the assassin. Collie, with impeccable timing, plucked the hat from midair. He turned and trotted toward Truesdale. The club manager seized his chance to be heroic. He flapped his arms at nothingness. Away with you, spirit. Return to the phantasmagoria from whence you came. The spirit declined the invitation with a blow that bent the manager double. Truesdale winced for him. He knew that, look, the assassin fought dirty. A patter of running feet chased Collie, and his head jerked backward as an invisible arm locked around his neck. Constance ran to his aid. Unhand my servant! She swung her umbrella with venom. The assassin released Collie and must have dodged out of the way as Constance's brawly thwacked across the old man's spine. He yelped and dropped the hat. Truesdale launched himself into a flat-out dive for the falling Stetson. The fingertips of his right hand closed around its broad felt brim. He slapped face first onto the steel floor. The assassin tried to wrench the hat from Truesdale's hand. They yanked the Stetson back and forth. The woman grunted as she pulled with all her weight against her prone enemy. He held on grimly, slowly drawing the brim closer. A lesser hat would have split at the seams, but not a Stetson. Miss Haltwhistle swung her umbrella ferociously, and the carved fox handle clunked off bone. Perhaps an invisible skull? He jerked the hat out of the assassin's grasp as Constance raised her umbrella to strike again. Apparently this was the straw that broke the invisible woman's back. Truesdale heard her bare feet slap past him as she raced down the hall with a whiff of cedar-scented bath oil. Miss Haltwhistle chased after the attacker, giving him a glimpse of her white boots as she ran. He gawped as her shapely ankles flashed by. Focus. He examined his hat. The ice-cold metal artifact was still hidden in the lining. Thank God the assassin hadn't found the triangle and done something extreme like swallow it. He had no idea whether the contents of an invisible stomach could be seen, but he sure didn't want to find out. He crammed the Stetson onto his head and started to push himself up. Collie coughed. Please, sir, don't stand. I beg you. The servant removed his emerald tailcoat, folded it, and presented it with a bow. There was a slight scent of mothballs, although whether it was from Collie or the garment was difficult to discern. Truesdale raised himself just far enough that he could attempt to put on the silk livery. The long-tailed coat was made to fit a slender man's frame. Rather than risk ripping the seams with his broad shoulders, he wrapped the garment around his waist like a Scottish kilt. The silk slithered over his bare skin as he tied the arms into a makeshift belt. The color drained from Collie's face at the use of his coat as a codpiece. With a moan, the club manager uncurled from his bent position. Tears streamed down his flushed cheeks. His pencil mustache quivered on his not-so-stiff upper lip, and his bow tie was askew. 
Collie heaved a sigh and drew a leather clasp purse out of his silk pantaloons. He pulled out a thick wad of black-inked pound notes and handed the entire roll to the manager. Please accept a token of Miss Holtwistle's gratitude for your discretion regarding this unfortunate incident. She prefers no arrests, gossip, or newspaper reports arise from the event. His world-weary tone suggested Collie repeated this speech frequently. The manager gestured at Truesdale. He's broken our dress code. Still breaking it, for that matter. He'll have to go. Naturally, said Collie. Down the corridor, the levitating reading room was gone, and the uniformed boy was doubled over in pain next to the shaft's brass railing. It appeared Freckles had suffered the same indignity as the manager. Constance stood next to the boy. Displaying the ultimate British bedside manner, she offered a firm, there, there, with a gentle pat to his shoulder. Maybe she was a little softer than she seemed. Her white dress fairly glowed in the electric light. Ethereal, otherworldly. His eyes must be playing tricks, for he'd swear that snowflakes drifted around her, frosting her red hair as she comforted the boy. Almost angelic. He glanced down at his attire. How would the heavenly Miss Haltwhistle react if he approached her wearing only a tailcoat kilt? And what if the invisible woman lurked nearby, ready to strike? Collie murmured, I wouldn't go up there just yet, sir, if I were you. It's always best to keep an extra safe distance from such a dangerous woman. Whether he meant the assassin or Constance, Truesdale couldn't say. Chapter 8 The Cavalcade In light of the attack by the invisible person, Constance's plan, with a capital P, was in dire need of revision. She stood on the driver's box of her green carriage with her furled umbrella in hand, peering down the Piro Club's gravel driveway. Truesdale was still inside the club, presumably finding something more appropriate to wear than the Yorkshire Herald newspaper. While she waited for him, she watched for the Holtwhistle Hall carriages, which would hopefully arrive before anything more bizarre occurred than a snowstorm in a corridor, gorillas playing whist, or a hat-stealing aberration of nature. The rain had finally stopped, and the air was thick with the scent of wet foliage and earth, Drips of water beat a gentle tattoo through the ancient forest. The gusting breeze rustled leaves as thrushes trilled over a chorus of tree pippets, warblers, and redstarts. As the woods sang, the Tesla coil hummed a single note of power. Violet lightning crackled and danced within the transparent top of the hourglass tower. Beneath the trees, a hazy carpet of bluebells glowed in the unnatural light. Science had transformed the idyllic landscape into an outlandish spectacle, potentially peopled by unseen predators. This raised many questions. First and foremost, why had the creature attacked Truesdale and not her? Based on King Oscar's obsession with destroying all halt whistles, 
It was only logical that she should be the focus of any and all violence, not some itinerant engineer. Constance took as deep a breath of the metallic-tinged air as her corset allowed. Surely I'm a more important target than Truesdale. Perhaps someone has mistaken him to be my bodyguard. Yes, that must be it. A simple error on the part of a villain. Secondly, it seemed that Truesdale's outlandish tale of the original Invisible Man must be at least partly true. Once a lady had clunked her umbrella against an unseen body, there was no further room to doubt that a person can be both present and ethereal at the same time. Papa had speculated that the flickers of light some perceived to be ghosts were actually reflections of beings in other dimensions— an upstanding lady in this world might glimpse the shadow of her alternate self on a wall, leading to all kinds of fantastical conclusions. No wonder women were often called hysterical, when in fact they were innately predisposed to notice other people more than the typical man. Men tended to focus on what was right in front of them, while women observed the wider universe. That was her theory, at least— She'd yet to meet a man who agreed with her, but that didn't mean she wasn't right. She exhaled the corrupted air. As dangerous to the natural world as science could be, it could also create effects that were almost magical. For instance, the purple light of the club's electrical generator could be viewed as adding a bewitching majesty to Eclisol Woods, if her unusual upbringing meant that she couldn't see the world through rose-colored glasses, perhaps a positive purple perspective could be the next best thing. She resolved to purchase amethyst-tinted lenses for her brass goggle collection at the earliest juncture. The ocular accessory was ubiquitous in noble wardrobes due to the high status of science in the royal court. The more elaborate the goggles— the greater the implication that the owner was a science aficionado. Constance gazed down at the assembled steam workers lined up in formation along the gravel driveway. The twenty or so engineers seemed unaware that they were missing a chance to impress with their ocular devices. From each of their tool belts hung mundane brass goggles. Why didn't they upgrade to the latest triple-lensed designs that included a magnifying loop, barometer, and compass? Surely even steam workers required more than basic utilitarian protection from their eyewear? After all, they were an integral cog in the Queen's magnificent war machine. Didn't they deserve a splash of courtly style? It was an oversight she should point out to Maya, Miss Haltwhistle, the former student, swallowed back a lump in her throat. Her inner brass queen chided, "'Stop that! There's no time for sentimentality today. Action, not tears, is the only way to make progress. Heavens, she wouldn't get anywhere if she allowed her two roles in life to bicker. Was it possible the stress of the last few weeks was beginning to take its toll?' She tilted up her chin. She must hold herself together— too many people were relying on her to save the day in both capacities, and there was no reason to think she couldn't handle her dual responsibilities flawlessly. Case in point, her driver, Hearn, glanced up at her, 
awaiting her next order while holding the carriage pony's bridles. A black top hat crowned the brawny forty-year-old's bald head atop a well-fed face endowed with a magnificent walrus mustache. He had virtually no neck. His overdeveloped muscles were impressive evidence of his one true love after horses, bare-knuckle boxing. He was known throughout Sheffield as the only man to win the Norton Agricultural Show free fight three years in a row. Armed only with his mustache, he had head-butted, groin-kicked, and throttled at least ten other men before each victory. He was the pride of the halt-whistle staff, many of whom bet heavily on him whenever he fought. Constance herself had won ten shillings on his last bout. She'd heard whispers amongst the stable staff that Hearn's martial success was partly due to the intricate tattoos that covered his chest, back, and bulging biceps. No saucy mermaids or scarlet heart dedicated to his latest conquest marred his skin. Inspired by his Maori grandmother, Hearn boasted a jet-black spiral filigree carved into his flesh with bone chisels by Yorkshire's only genuine Tomoko artist. Hearn's numerous wins had inspired dozens of fighters to sit for similar tattoos, but most staggered out of the tattoo parlor sobbing long before the bone chisels finished their design. A barely-started Maori tattoo was the trademark of an amateur pugilist. Hearn relished taking on three or four of such wastrels at a time, much to the delight of his raucous fans. Constance was glad he was there. It seemed her traditional way of dealing with problems was in need of an update. Usually between Collie's trunk of bribe money and Hearn's martial prowess, things had a habit of going her way. She'd always assumed there were few issues in life that couldn't be solved with the application of a hefty bribe or a hearty slap. But between the hunt for a spouse and the quest to find the missing scientists, she needed to approach matters with a little more finesse. It was time for her to become the heroine the situation deserved. She stood a little taller in her ankle boots and jabbed her umbrella at the sky, challenging the heavens to trifle with the brass queen. Muttering arose from the steamworkers. She'd forgotten they were watching her. With a polite cough, Constance lowered her umbrella and turned to face them, mere Miss Haltwhistle once more. The engineers displayed the ghostly pallor of those who spent their lives in gaslit factories. If not for a shared layer of grime, they would almost have been pale enough to pass for aristocrats. Lord, she hadn't been talking to herself while she mused, had she? She had a habit of doing that, but the halt-whistle servants took such idiosyncrasies in their stride. Thank goodness Truesdale wasn't here to witness one of her more whimsical habits. A brunette steamworker with gray streaks frosting her upswept hair stepped forward. It was the woman with the medal pinned to her chest who had spoken up to thank Constance earlier. Now her eyes were dark with concern. Are you well, miss? Constance tilted her head. Perfectly. Why do you ask? You seem to be having quite a conversation there with yourself. Oh, no. Ah, oh, well, my mumbles merely indicate that I'm composing an artistic oral interpretation of the day's events. 
I'm a part-time poetess. Hearn's eyebrows lifted. Constance shot him a warning glance, then returned her attention to the woman before her. In her most regal tone, she asked, And with whom am I conversing? Chief Welder Emily Lambert at your service, miss. The welder curtsied with surprising grace. Hearn pulled himself a little taller in his black riding boots as he gazed at the steamworker. He puffed out his barrel chest and tensed his burly physique so hard that he almost burst the seams of his emerald tailcoat. Ah, true love strikes again. How freeing it must be to be free to pursue romance at every turn. Chief Welder Lambert, it's a pleasure. The carriages shouldn't be much longer. My cook will have a hot lunch ready for you and your colleagues upon your arrival. We're grateful, miss, aren't we, lads and lasses? This drew a wave of nods from the crowd. Constance beamed. Splendid. It does appear that the incident at my party resulted in this unfortunate lockdown at the steamworks. It's yet another thing that the miscreants responsible shall be held accountable for. By the police, of course. Not me. A smattering of applause emboldened her to continue. Besides, noblesse oblige and all that... It is my privilege to help the less fortunate. I always like to think that I do the right thing for those around me, even if, at times, they do not understand what I'm doing, or why, or when, or even how. I'm always helping, as best I can. Constance cast a meaningful glance at Collie, who stood in the shadow of Hearn, minus his green livery coat. She had never seen her loyal retainer in just his shirt-sleeves before, Collie straightened his posture, which she assumed meant he forgave her for slapping him with an umbrella. Good, another problem sorted. Perhaps things were starting to look up. The club doors opened with a bang, and out strode Truesdale in his Stetson crown, carrying a travel-worn suitcase. He was every inch the unarmed gunslinger in his all-black ensemble, a leather duster coat swung like a cloak from his muscular frame, a frock coat, silk shirt, knotted neckerchief, svelte waistcoat, and pinstriped pants complemented his cowboy boots embroidered with shooting stars. Constance gaped. His outfit was a tad more decorous than the Yorkshire Herald newspaper, but not by much. The memory of his newsprint underwear caused a curious tingle beneath her corset. She'd never seen a strapping young man wearing only newsprint before. His strong, wide chest. It was a sight she wouldn't mind seeing again, should the opportunity present itself. She was curious about those well-toned muscles. How did a cowboy keep in shape? Was it all hard riding and lassoing things with rope and... She fanned herself vigorously. The object of her newfound desire stared into the woods, searching for invisible foes. Her cheeks glowed at her own impropriety. Truesdale glanced at her and looked away, flushed. Ha! She wasn't the only one embarrassed about his nudity. Good. She turned to check the driveway. Rumbling toward her was a veritable cavalcade of halt-whistle carriages. The first was an open six-passenger Landau driven by a green-liveried coachman. The formal black-and-gold carriage bore her family crest on the doors and was drawn by four jet-black Frisians, 
the offspring of papa's infamously foul-tempered stallion Beelzebub. The uncut manes and tails of the horses rippled in the breeze, like the battle pennants once carried by their warhorse ancestors. The next vehicle wasn't quite so illustrious. Two gray shires from the estate farms pulled an empty hay wagon. A rosy-cheeked milkmaid in a blue apron dress and two farm laborers in flat caps, white shirts, and Sunday-best pants rode on the front box of the wagon. The trio looked much cleaner than one would expect at noon on a Monday. Constance suspected they had taken a dip in the river and put on their church clothes to impress the steam workers. Her instructions to the estate staff to host the townies at a servant's ball should allow everyone to blow off steam while they waited for Constance to announce either a betrothal or the end of the hall as they knew it. With the steam workers homeless and her staff potentially about to be, they had more in common than they knew. The last vehicle to arrive was one Papa had acquired in Japan. It was styled as a dragon, whose snake-like body wrapped three times around the sides of the carriage. The red-and-gold monster held the driver's bench inside its gaping jaws, and its front claws stretched out menacingly toward the rumps of the chestnut Arabians drawing the carriage. The four ponies seemed remarkably unconcerned about the mythical creature roaring silently behind them. Constance asked Hearn, "'Which carriage is the fastest? We've wasted quite enough time here. I have a plan to put into action.' Hearn thoughtfully sucked the air through the gap where his front teeth should have been. "'I reckon that red-and-gold creature can hit a pretty pace. Regarding this plan, miss, are we off to the steamworks, then?' Sadly, the security lockdown precludes my investigation there. We'll ride the dragon back into town. We're going to find Lord Burdock. Very good, miss. The new arrivals pulled into a line behind her breakfast carriage. Collie held up a gloved hand to help her climb down from the box. Truesdale stood beside the steam workers and fumbled with the combination lock on his suitcase. With its owner's attention distracted, his Stetson chose this moment to levitate off his head. Truesdale dropped the suitcase and grabbed his hat, yelling, Oh, no, you don't. Hands off, you monster. Ignoring the gaping steam workers, Truesdale tugged the Stetson free from a phantasmagoric foe and pulled it firmly down onto his head. Presumably chasing an invisible assassin, he sprinted into the woods and ran back and forth, waving his arms like a lunatic. Welder Lambert asked, Is he quite sane? The cowboy threw himself onto the ground to wrestle with a hawthorn bush. Constance declared, Sunstroke. Several steamworkers glanced up at the overcast sky, but made no comment. Truesdale clawed at his throat and emitted rather vulgar choking noises. Constance heaved a sigh. Hearn, please go and assist Mr. Truesdale. It appears the woods do not agree with him. I don't see anything to slap, miss. You'll find something. I'm sure of it. Hearn went to help Truesdale as the cowboy punched thin air. The approach of the burly coachman did the trick, as it usually did with malefactors, invisible or otherwise. 
Truesdale staggered to his feet, unmolested. It seemed his attacker had given up. For now. Constance rubbed her forehead. Why was the invisible fiend so intent on snatching Truesdale's Stetson? Also, had the world always been this perplexing, and she'd been too busy running the estate to notice? Truesdale swatted at empty air as he returned to his dropped suitcase. He scooped it up and backed toward the carriages, keeping a wary eye on the woods. He tipped his hat to Hearn. Most grateful for your help there. I didn't do much, but you're welcome, said Hearn. Constance strolled toward the dragon carriage, taking her time so the servants could reach their positions before she got there. Hearn noticed her promenade and sprinted by her. He shooed away the junior driver and climbed up to sit in the gaping jaws of the red and gold reptile. Collie hastened to check the open carriage seats for transparent enemies. Finding none, he stood by the steps and held Constance's hand as she climbed into the belly of the beast. Painted murals decorated the interior walls and floor of the Japanese carriage. Two vast armies of red and blue armored samurai were locked in eternal combat on a field of shimmering gold leaf. The battlefield was complemented by sumptuously cushioned seats upholstered in the finest spun gold cloth. The 17th century vehicle had been built to transport a warlord empress on a tour of newly conquered lands. Somehow, Papa had acquired the carriage and shipped it to Constance from Kyoto as a gift for her 14th birthday. She'd have preferred that he stopped by in person on the day, but beggars couldn't be choosers. She settled her bustle upon the cloth of gold. Outside, Truesdale had dropped to a squat upon the gravel to fumble inside his suitcase. He drew out Collie's emerald tailcoat, locked the case, and stood. With the coat draped over his arm, he strode to the silver-haired servant and bowed. Thank you for the loan of your coat, Mr. Collie. Returning to my room would have been even more embarrassing without it. Collie took the coat gingerly, as if the very fabric might explode at his touch. He glanced up at Constance, heaved a dramatic sigh, and put on the coat. Truesdale lurched up the carriage steps and tossed his suitcase onto the bench opposite. Her heart thudded as he plunked his huge frame right next to her on the golden seat. She slid away from him, cramming herself against the carriage wall. Did Americans have no concept of the British need for three feet of personal space? Collie raised both eyebrows at the implied intimacy of their seating arrangement. Lips puckered, he slammed the carriage door and stomped over to the dragon's head to sit beside Hearn. Technically, both retainers served the role of chaperone, but still this situation was beyond awkward. She turned to Truesdale, prepared to deliver a rebuke for his forward behavior. He scanned the forest, his brow furrowed over bruised blue eyes and a swollen nose. Almost hidden by his neckerchief, a nasty cut, congealed with blood and white styptic powder, scored his throat. Despite his injuries, his square jaw was clean-shaven, and his long, dark sideburns were neatly trimmed. 
Overall, there was a marked improvement over his earlier disheveled appearance. If it weren't for his complete lack of fashion, sense, and manners, in the right light he could almost pass for handsome. Quelle surprise! What a shame he wasn't an eligible nobleman. Truesdale glanced at her. What? Oh, um, you're hurt. Could have been much worse. His eyes held a flicker of darkness, the look of a man who had faced death and won. Barely. Her stomach dropped. Oh, dear, I'm so sorry. Not your fault, wasn't it? If the assassin was one of King Oscar's thugs, then Truesdale had simply got in the way of their true aim, eliminating her. Perhaps by saving her at the party, Truesdale had forced himself into the line of fire? On the other hand, his knowledge of the invisibility serum was in itself an odd coincidence. Was fate throwing her a winning hand, or were darker forces afoot? The worst possible scenario rose in her mind. Invisibility was a dirty trick, even for Oscar. Perhaps a serum was to blame, but even that had to draw its power from somewhere. A ghost assassin suggested a body that had taken a slight step left into an alternate dimension, while still leaving enough of a physical form to interact and do harm. Truesdale seemed to have no inkling of this, but for her it seemed a logical extrapolation. Was it possible that Oscar had started fooling around with interdimensional transference? Heaven forfend he'd finally got his hand on an enigma key. If he had, then this world and all others were surely doomed, and only the Brass Queen could save them. Chapter 9 Secrets and Shenanigans With the weight of all worlds now firmly on her shoulders, Constance sat back into the plush gold cushions of the dragon carriage. She called out to Hearn, Head for Le Pont Pompeu restaurant. The carriage ponies broke into a brisk trot. Truesdale gawped at her. We're stopping for lunch. We were only just attacked by... I see no reason to adventure on an empty stomach. It's been ages since breakfast. Personally, I like to eat at least once every three hours. It keeps one's energy topped up. But apart from that, this is the next stage of the plan. With a capital P. Lord help me. Truesdale folded his arms, apparently unable to resist watching the passing forest for foes. If you must know, this part of the plan is rather clever. We're going to find Lord Burdock. He's staying with Lady Pemmington, and she always takes her luncheon at the finest restaurant in town. Naturally, she'll bring her house guests with her. Lady Pemmington has the innate ability to always appear in the right place at the right time for maximum social exposure. She's somewhat my idol in this matter. So the plan now relies on a society maven taking lunch? Ugh. Truesdale's head was still turned to the woods. Constance huffed. She wasn't yet desperate enough to ask his opinion on what they should do. More importantly, surely she was the better view. Even if there was an entire army camped out there, you'd never see them. True, but it makes me feel better to keep a lookout. 
It's only a matter of time before that invisible woman figures out a better plan of attack. She stared at the back of his head. Not to nitpick, but how could you possibly know your assailant was female? The disembodied voice I heard during our encounter in the club could have been a soprano male. I know for certain because, well, he cleared his throat. The thing is, she ended up in the bathtub with me, briefly. I beg your pardon. He turned to face her, a flush creeping across his tanned cheeks. It's not how it sounds. I didn't know she was a woman at the time I thought she was a man. Well, perhaps I should introduce you to my cousin Wellington. I understand he's quite free about his bathtub companions, both male and female. I also saw her legs and her back, um, so forth, covered in bubbles. I reckon we need to figure out a way to splatter some kind of dye or paint on our invisible friends to make them partially visible. Her, so forth. What liquid doesn't wash off easily? India ink, that's soot and shellac, highly water-resistant, and we'll need a close-range delivery system. Bobbles. Confusion fell upon his face like rain on an English picnic. Bobbles, Christmas baubles, the hand-blown glass type, extremely delicate, easy to break, easy to throw. We could close them up with sealing wax. Huh, that's not bad for a short-term solution. I can see I'll have to watch myself around you, Miss Haltwhistle. You're not just a pretty face. I should hope not. He chuckled. No offense meant. So, you seem pretty unshaken, considering you just met your first invisible assassin. She stiffened. I, well, what do you want me to do? Faint? He shrugged. An assassin alone would scare most folks, never mind the otherworldly element. Is there something about you I should know, Miss Haltwhistle? She folded her arms. Certainly not. He studied her. You don't trust me? Of course I don't. A tick in his cheek pulsed. Well, there's no need to take it personally, Mr. Truesdale. I don't fully trust anyone. He stared. Not even your servants? That's different. They're like family to me. That's a pretty high endorsement. You don't know my family. He leaned close, gazing deep into her eyes. About that, where exactly is your father right now? She unfolded her arms and clasped her hands in her lap. She studied the stitching on her somewhat grimy opera gloves. Don't mention he's in a parallel universe or ether or portals or... Ah, uh, well, Papa's traveling in Africa. Yes, that's it, Central Africa. He's steaming up the Congo River in a boat... I expect I'll be receiving a letter or three from him any day now. He writes to me all the time, you know. Her mouth grew oddly parched beneath his stare. She licked her lips. No matter what people say, he's alive and well, enjoying the African sun and taking the most scenic route, as true explorers always do, through the Congo, which is where he is, on a boat, writing me a letter. I'm sure of it. Uh-huh. I think I'm getting the picture. He grinned and sat back. She breathed a little easier. Thank heavens, I'm such an effective liar. She bellowed to Hearn over the pony's hoofbeats. On second thought, 
Take us by the glassworks and Pinder's print emporium en route to Le Pompompeux. Yes, miss. She turned to Truesdale. We had better get started on our anti-invisibility baubles as soon as possible, and we have just enough time to bring that about. Lady Pemmington takes her luncheon at two o'clock daily. She waved at the forest. Judging by the height of the sun and the shadow from the trees, I'd say it's about... Out of his vest pocket, Truesdale pulled a silver fob watch, engraved with the heavenly constellation of Leo. He flicked the case open. It's noon now. Oh, good. There was a miniature painted inside the top of the case. She craned her neck to view it. Your relatives? He hesitated, then turned the watch so she could see. It was a family portrait, exquisitely painted with fine detail, an older version of Truesdale in a blue cavalry uniform, stood with his arm around a kind-faced woman with blonde hair and a baby in her arms. Two blonde little girls and three gangly youths stood beside their parents. All three youths wore smart cavalry uniforms just like their father. That's me and my parents and siblings back home in Kansas. The baby is Hope, the girls are Verity and Charity, the boys me, Liberty, and Freedom. It's a beautiful miniature. Does your family still reside in Kansas? Some do, some don't. Truesdale contemplated the watch, his face crumpled into misery. Kansas must have been an absolute idol to elicit such visceral nostalgia. To lighten his mood, she smiled. Heavens, Mr. Truesdale, you're so lucky to be part of a large family. I used to wish for siblings myself, but alas, I am an only child. Just between us, I think I would have made an excellent twin. Think of the trouble we would have caused, Constance and Ethel, out on the town, breaking hearts and windows, like the wicked gals in the Penny Dreadfuls. He didn't appear to hear her. She subtly coughed, increasing the volume and intensity until he stared at her in alarm. I see from your portrait that, like me, you were expected to follow your father into the family business. He furrowed his brow. You mean enter the military? I never really thought of it that way, but you're right. I guess it was always assumed that my brothers and I would join up as soon as we turned sixteen. We climbed our way through the ranks, never quite able to fill some pretty big shoes. My father was a hero in the Civil War, General Justice Franklin Truesdale, same name and rank as my grandpa and his grandpa before. We have a long tradition of service to our country. And that's why you go by J.F., not your full name, to avoid comparison? Huh, I guess so. It's funny. I never talked about this with... He stopped and turned away, studying the woods with his jaw set tight. His anguish was palpable. She reached out her hand to touch his arm, stopping short as her reading of Babette's modern manners came to mind. One doesn't touch a gentleman in one's carriage. Mamma would turn in her grave if she... Her heart wrenched as she almost felt the last hug her mother ever gave her. She was once more a ten-year-old girl, standing on the great drive outside Haltwhistle Hall. Lady Pendleroy, now Baroness Haltwhistle, was setting out on an adventure. 
Mama's dark hair was pinned up beneath her new pink pith helmet, bought as a joke by Papa but worn with pride by his fashion-forward wife. Four wagons packed with hat boxes, trunks, and supplies stood in line behind the black and gold Landau on the driveway of Haltwhistle Hall. The horses stomped their hooves impatiently as Mama kissed her on the forehead and whispered, "'We'll be home before you know it, my dear. Look after the estate.' You're in charge now. She climbed up into the carriage. Papa took her hand as she settled down next to him. Two lovebirds heading to Egypt to search for hidden treasures. Constance murmured, Malaria. Truesdale turned to her. She swallowed hard. My mother died in Egypt from malaria. Her brother, my Uncle Bertie, never forgave Papa for taking her out there. Papa blamed himself, of course. He's never been the same since her death. He rubbed his hands over his eyes. I'm sorry for your loss. Was it recent? She dropped her head. Seems like yesterday, but no, eleven years have passed. Papa stayed home for a while after the funeral, but he was restless. At fourteen I took over running the estate as he roamed the world— I can't believe I'm on the verge of losing everything I've built since he left. Her hands clenched into fists. But I digress. You were telling me about your mother. No, I wasn't. Tell me anyway. He sighed. Well, she was an army nurse when Papa met her. He and his unit had barely survived an ambush by a gang of outlaws they were tracking. He says he fell in love with her over a broken leg two busted ribs and a gunshot wound to the shoulder. She's a wonderful woman. No nonsense, sharp as a tack, and kinder than the world deserves. She sighed. So your parents married for love. How delightful. They must be so proud of you. The steamworks only hire the best. He shrugged. I don't know, maybe. Not so sure what they'd make of me at the moment. Why is that? I haven't told them. That is no reason. His eyes hardened, and for a moment he looked almost sinister in his all-black attire. Trust no one, as Papa used to say. Madmen, villains, and thieves. And she'd find even worse outside their immediate family. Well, the watch is lovely, and I'm sure it made your 18th birthday memorable. Tell me, when exactly is your birthday, Mr. Truesdale? He took just a moment too long to answer. April 21st. Bull, thought Constance. If his birthday were April 21st, Taurus the Bull would have been his star sign, but his watch was clearly engraved with the constellation of Leo the Lion. If his parents had given him the timepiece as a birthday gift, then surely the engraving would have reflected his true zodiac sign. Her suspicions were confirmed. The cowboy couldn't be trusted. Her heart sank to her ankle boots and stayed there for the rest of the journey. Oh no, Truesdale can't be trusted. Then again, neither can Constance. Can two liars save the world from invisible assassins? 
or will the hat-stealing aberration of nature return with more than soap bubbles in hand? Will Kali survive any further help from Constance and her backthwacking umbrella? Tune in to episode three of The Brass Queen to find out. So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you so much! CamCat Unwrapped also offers other CamCat books as podcasts. Also, check out our interviews with authors, editors, and other bookworms in our background episodes where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.